Hello everyone and welcome to the Phineas Club. This is episode 55 for April 2015. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Phileas Club. This is a show where we get people from different places in the world to tell us how things are going in their quadrant of the planet and uh, how what things are important in their neighborhood and possibly how they look at things that are important in other parts of the world, hopefully give it, giving us a uh, somewhat global view of the news in the world. Ooh, something's uh, firing up. I heard Skype, and uh, that was Skype on the Western portion of the show. Uh, it was sounding off from Tom Merritt's uh, computer, and I'm it was? hoping... I think so. Or maybe yeah, it I heard it too, but I, I don't know why that would be happening. Huh. Or where Eric, it would be coming uh, from. No. Eric, are you still there? No. Ooh. Who, who smelt it, dealt it. <laughs> <laughs> then to Western Possibly. Europe is what you were trying to say. That, that's where I was going. So, yeah, I know. Oh, I heard the, it. And I, I think I heard it in my house, too. So I think you're right. But I'm not uh, sure what computer it was. <laughs> <laughs> you have too many of those. Maybe a, maybe a, a phone or something. Apologies um, for that. So that lovely voice is that of Tom Merritt, as I was saying, a podcaster extraordinaire. Uh, in, some, in some ways, my boss, since I work for him on the Daily Tech News Show, his Daily Tech News Show, which is very aptly named. How are you? And you are in California, in Los Angeles. How are you right. doing, Tom? I'm on the west side of Los Angeles. Actually, the patrons of, of Daily Tech News Show are both of our bosses. That's so. true. That's that means true. you work for me. That's right. Exactly. Eric's our boss. My $1 a month really buys a lot of power. Hey, man, it helps. Believe me. (laughs) Every Uh, little bit. Yeah. No, things are sunny in Los Angeles. It's eight in the morning, and we're all uh, awash in the glow of last night's interview with Diane Sawyer by Bruce Jenner. Okay, I don't know who any of those people are. But well, well a water would imply that you have some water, so you don't have any water. But other than that, <laughs> everything's fine. It's a, it's a sand bath, but yeah. <laughs> That's right. And and so, by the way, uh, by your Patreon logic, you're also my boss because you're a boss of oh, that's right. the Rendezvous Tech. So, in, in a way, you are my boss. It's a, so it's a very go. intricate org chart. <laughs> and uh, Eric Olander is here as well, all the way from uh, Vietnam. And Eric, uh, you sent me your official uh, nomenclature for... Well, it's all so confusing for everybody. So I figure <laughs> I always send this thing out in advance so people can read from it. Yeah, yeah, that that was very because I could not have come up with this uh, on my own. Uh, so you're the general di- director of FBNC, which is the All Business News Cable TV Network uh, in Vietnam, and you're also uh, the co-founder of the China Africa Project and the co-host of the weekly China in Africa podcast, which is uh, something you were doing when you were still working in France at uh, another TV channel when I first met you. Yeah, so that's been going on for five years now. I'm nowhere near as successful a podcaster as you two are. So one of these days, you're going to have to tell me your secrets on how to kind of get into the big leagues of it all. Uh, Basically, fool people into giving you money and uh, do it all day. So that's how it works. Fool people to give me money. Got it. (laughs) Got it down? Good. That's it. (laughs) 
Excellent. Uh, so uh, as I think we, we, I had you two on the show, we were joking before the, we started recording that uh, uh, when I already had you two together on the show, and that was because when I, I uh, was looking at the previous episodes, I was thinking, well, it might be time to get some serious people, uh, some real journalists back on the show. And of course, uh, your you name's Caleb. So Who I else is coming? Yeah, really. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so it's it's about 8 a.m. for you, Tom, I believe. Yeah, it's that's right. It's 5 p.m. for me and uh, 10, 10 p.m. PM over here. for you, Eric. So we're, we're spanning the globe once again. So and, no good um, morning Vietnam jokes this time. <laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't even think of this, but uh, okay. it might be appropriate for the topic you're going to cover. Um, and so like I did, as I did for the previous episode, um, I don't think there's really one main, main overarching uh, global story to uh, bring us all together on this uh, during the month. There wasn't one. So what we're going to do it as we did last episode, which I thought worked and uh, does give us a slightly more global view of important events in that sense that uh, we're each going to be selecting one, maybe two uh, stories that were making the most noise um, in our neighborhood. And that might be a local story, it might be a, a global story, but that's uh, the one we're going to be talking about and uh, potentially comment on each other's stories. So that's the new um, way of handling the show, which hopefully will uh, work uh, this time again. And for my story, um, I, so I kind of wanted to select, uh, well, maybe we'll, we'll go with both. They're going to be relatively short. Uh, I hope I'm not going to eat up the entire show. Uh, but we're going to talk very quickly a little bit uh, about the mass, mass surveillance laws um, that are being voted on in France right now. Uh, and mainly not because it's it's taking a lot of airtime, although it is taking some airtime, but uh, mostly because it's a topic that we all care about. And I suspect, uh, given our, our listenership, tech topics are uh, topics that they will care about as well. But before that, uh, I think the main story, the thing that has been making the most noise in France, uh, for sure, is the issue of refugee boats in the Mediterranean. And uh, the fact that a lot of mostly Syrian migrants uh, fleeing the war, basically, and uh, the horribleness in the Middle East, have been embarking on very unsafe boats with very uh, scummy uh, uh, operators who are taking a lot of money and get, promising they will get over to uh, the sacred land of Europe and uh, basically not only escape their, uh, their, their country torn by uh, tragedy, but also hopefully make life for themselves in Western Europe. And I'm saying scummy because some of the most uh, terrible details that have come out is how, are about how... Um, Immoral. I think it's safe to use that term here. Immoral. They. They. They are. Um, and comments like, you know, uh, we we had too many of those, so we had to throw a few of them off the boat. And of course, they when the boats uh, either sink or don't um, um, hold everyone because they're overloaded, a lot of people die. Which is it's it's not a joke at all. Obviously, it's a real tragedy here as well. And there, the the sense of tragedy is is. 
uh, amplified by the fact that they're trying to flee uh, an already terrible place and uh, some of them are finding death in the waters that are supposed to be bringing them to um, the you know, the, the, the Western Europe where they're hoping to achieve things. Uh, now, the other side of this is that Europe has been, I don't know if you can ever do enough for those problems, um, but definitely this has raised alarms and people have been realizing that this has been happening for a long time. Uh, one of the key things was that in one of those uh, um instances, there was a dozen people who were thrown off board because they were Christians. It was actually a religious uh, question there. And that, I think, sort of initiated the whole discussion about this. And it obviously went beyond the question of whether or not they were Christians and started the discussion about all of this uh, issue. But the, 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 the thing about Europe is that Okay, so to put it very bluntly, uh, the main issue is nobody wants them. And when I'm saying nobody, I'm not saying every, you know, citizen in European countries or in Western Europe countries, but uh, the governments, uh, nobody wants them. And each one is sort of saying, yeah, but we can take that many people, but not more because of our situation, because what do you do with them once they're here? Of course, you can offer them um, shelter and comfort, but then you they're in uh, societies that are already obsessed with the issue of illegal immigration and uh, unemployment and, you know, all of this is already a constant source of uh, political debate here. And no one is stepping up and saying, you know what, we'll just take more or we'll take them. And they're discussing how to, basically, the discussion has been going towards uh, how can we prevent these things from happening, maybe by destroying the illegal uh, traffickers, because that's what they are, uh, destroying their facilities rather than figuring out how to um, get the migrants and the refugees into a safe environment. And I, I always try to be very uh, unbiased in, the, in these uh, descriptions. And I think this, what I'm saying here might imply that the humane thing to do would be to uh, get all of them in a safe, you know, to save them from their um, situation. Obviously, it's not that simple because we already have issues with immigrants and we haven't found a way of providing them with um, with long-term solutions already. Now, the situation here, I think, is a little bit different because it's actually uh, war refugees and and people who are not just leaving a country where they have a, a, a bad economic situation to try and find a better situation in Western Europe, but there are actually a lot of them, or probably most of them, are in actual danger in their uh, country of origin. So it's a difficult situation and we're nowhere near uh, a solution because uh, the one natural, the, the one thing that comes to your mind if you're a, you know, a, a human person would be, well, let's just open the doors and get them here. But no one is willing to do that because of what happens afterwards and no one knows what to do with them afterwards. So 
Um, definitely that issue of refugee boats and people dying by the dozen on in the Mediterranean has been a somewhat difficult, but also uh, uh, it's brought a little bit of a feeling of shame uh, in the discussion in in, in that sense. Um, so that's that's been occupying the the headlines for a few weeks now, and I'm wondering if you guys have heard about it or or if it's really a um, you know a, a European centric issue or Middle Middle Eastern centric issue. Well, I, you know, Tom, I, go ahead. I'm always following European news, so I don't know if it's because of that or uh, more than the fact that I don't know whether it's really being covered in the United States much. But it is interesting to hear your description of it because it's different from the perspective I've gotten just reading about it, which to and, and it's not to contradict anything you say. But the way I have seen it presented uh, mostly by the BBC is that. There was the move last year to reduce the operation to rescue the boats coming over. And they don't say Syria only, but they talk about Libya and Eritrea and other places as well uh, because they felt they were encouraging these risky ventures and that that was causing more deaths because people thought, well, we'll go ahead and get on the boat because then someone from Italy will come and save us. Uh, and so they reduced the operations. And now it turns out, well, the boats haven't stopped but you have more of them running into trouble. And you had the recent one where the captain ran into a rescue boat and it, it killed a lot of people. Uh, and then there was finding out that people were locked down into the hold. And that is the kind of thing you're talking about where they just treat people like cattle. Uh, a lot of times it's not even refugees going to a camp. Uh, they're people being sold into service uh, in, in various parts of Europe. And, and so it, to me, it has looked as if the conversation is more about should we be rescuing the boats? Should we be uh, carrying out an operation uh, to rescue boats? Because it might encourage more of them to come. But if we don't carry out this operation at a higher level, then more people are going to die. That's, uh, you know, it's interesting. I haven't quite uh, heard the discussion on that level, uh, in France at least, and I suspect that uh, it might be uh, different in... I, I, I know you listen to the BBC. You yeah, yeah, yeah. get your news from the BBC a lot. I wouldn't be surprised if it was happening on a different level in, uh, in the UK. Um, I'm sure this has been part of the discussion in France as well, but it certainly hasn't been the main angle on the on the issue um i think there is a feeling in france that by at least a portion of the population or maybe the political spectrum that it is our duty to welcome uh people who need help um And that's, I don't, you know, I, don't, I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, okay. Marine Le Pen and the oh, Front National well. and the National Front. <laughs> well, no, but that is that represents yeah, a right. growing slice of the French population. And I think what we to look at this, you know, in, in, in my view, the, the appropriate context is we back up from the immigration itself and look at the political context with which this is happening in. And there is nowhere in Europe right now today, from Germany to Holland to even Sweden, who has been traditionally one of the more open countries, but particularly France, that can politically sustain a mass wave of immigrants coming in because there's just no appetite for it among the people. And so You're I think right, in some ways yeah. we're probably going to see a policy emerge that is similar to what we saw in Australia. And I think Australia represents a very interesting kind of comparison because Australian political values are very similar to, say, European political values, more in line with them than, say, the United States. 
And in Australia, they made a policy because they were being flooded with immigrants coming from Indonesia and from Malaysia and from some of these other parts of Southeast Asia. And they basically said, if you arrive by ship, there's no chance you're going to get any, you don't get in, period. We're going to intercept you, you get put to a remote island, and then you get deported back again. I think Frontex, which is the European Union's border service, is probably going to have to have a policy like that. Uh, which basically does interceptions. Now the French, I think, want to or have started bombing some of the uh, some of the ships. They're trying to blow up the ships before they even leave uh, in in Libya and some other places like the that. The empty that ships, me, just just to be clear. That's ships, right. But, yes. But at the same time, that's a that's not going to solve the problem. I mean that that is a short term kind of solution because they will always create more ships and more. They'll find a way around that. Um, my guess is you're probably going to see a militarization of the Mediterranean to intercept. Uh, much like what we have on the U.S.-Mexican border, um, which has been much more heavily militarized uh, over the past 20 years uh, to stop and really has, done, has been very effective at slowing the flow of illegal immigration. Um, but there is no political appetite in Western Europe for more assimilation, more immigration uh, that I can see right now. And it plays very well into Marine Le Pen. Everything that's happened over the past year, from the Charlie Hebdo to now this, really, really suits the right wing in Europe. So I would, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And actually for, for a few weeks, I was considering discussing the Front National, uh, our far right <coughs> party, which uh, is gaining a lot of importance as one of my stories as well. Um, I think there is uh, very little appetite to write for this kind of thing in in. For, for rescuing and for a wave of uh, welcoming illegal immigrants or making them legal in a way because of the right wing uh, rising in Europe. But that's why I was saying um, it's some fringes, some portion of the political spectrum uh, might would be would think that it would be the natural thing to do. It probably means more the the people than the the elected. Uh, people, in that sense that we've always had a very strong tradition of left-wing um, parties in France and left-wing supporters who were very uncomfortable with, without even mentioning the Front National, but they were very uncomfortable with the steps that the right-wing party, the conservative party, took when Sarkozy was in office in order to curb Uh, the issues of illegal immigration. Already at that point, there was a portion of the population that was uh, expressing very strong discontent with those uh, steps that were a lot more mild than what the uh, Australian government has been doing, apparently. So, yes, it's a very difficult position to be in for the current Uh, government for sure, at least in France, uh, and they, I'm sure they can't do what their own base would want them to do in an ideal world because it would play into the Front National's uh, uh, base. Um, mm. So yeah, it's. It, I just want to express the fact that there is a portion of the population that would want to, to get them in, I'm sure, but it just can't happen for a lot of reasons. I think arguably one of them being reality and that, you know, uh, is arguable, but uh, it's not just political. There is a reason why these things are not working. Um, but yeah, so I don't is know. It Front National may end up just being a detail of history. <laughs> it I may, see what you did it, there. 
No, but it, it may, it, yeah. you know, but it also, I think it represents a broader strain of frustration, much like the Tea Party in the U.S., which is just yeah. born of frustration. Or you, um, so, Yeah, I, t- I totally hear what you're saying. You know, and, and so, but again, I, I look at this as a pan-European issue, which is France being one, but at the same time, you know, my in-laws live in Holland and in rural Holland, there is no appetite for any of this, particularly for the fact that they're coming from Muslim countries, which even complicates the issue even more for Europeans who have a tortured relationship with Islam now. Well, there's, you know, there was an election in Finland uh, only a few, a couple of weeks ago, maybe not even that, a week ago, and... Uh, Their far right party, the True Finns, is now the second um, the second party in the country, um, and they have. It, you know, it's funny. Uh, last episode, I talked about my wife a lot. Uh, bye, honey. And <laughs> there she goes. Um, <laughs> and cue the wife. <laughs> and um, I talked about my wife a lot, which prompted a couple of comments about me being like Colombo or something, which. I appreciate. Um, and she was, she's always laughing about her country's concern with immigration because basically they have no immigrants. Finland, you know, uh, you can walk around in, or, or at least no visible immigrants, meaning uh, no people of color almost. You can walk around in Helsinki for hours and not see a black person or an, a person of Arab uh, origins. And They are still uh, very concerned with all of this, which, if anything, uh, you know, supports your your your. I don't want to say theory. Your your statement that this well, is my a concern. Skepticism that, yeah. that that Europe will respond to this in a kind of positive, constructive way. I have a feeling so, that fear is very much a part of going to drive the policy. I don't well, know that and, there is a, the other a constructive way, though. Well, it's it is difficult to to know what the constructive way to respond would be exactly. because you have the captain of that that ship that that sunk earlier this week saying I I wasn't even the captain. They just kind of thrust me in there and maybe that's not true. Maybe he's trying to get out of responsibility, but you definitely have people in Libya and elsewhere uh who don't care about the fate of the human beings they're putting on these ships uh, once they go across the water. And at that point, how do you discourage that behavior? If you say like, well, we're not going to allow you to get to shore. The people who are trafficking the humans don't care whether they get there in the first place anyway. And that's, that's the issue as well. Because if you, if you, don't discourage it, if you start saying, all right, we'll just, you know, we'll do the right thing and we'll just get all the ones that get on, on boats and that get to this, part of the sea and just welcome them and shelter them and and do you know the the humane thing once again then obviously it's going to encourage it and there is no no way of saying how it's going to stop which is so. why i think you'll probably end up with an australian like policy which is mass interceptions heavily militarized Uh, you know, moving beyond the kind of peace, you know, the types of ships that they have out there right now are more humanitarian types of facilities. Right. Uh, I suspect what you're going to, as as you're going to confront, as, as Tom rightly pointed out, we're talking about human traffickers uh, who oftentimes are, uh, you know, closely related to, to narco traffickers and whatnot in that same kind of vein. And so they're armed, they're, mil they're they, you know, this is a business for them. Uh, so just the, the coyotes who bring over immigrants from Mexico or Central America to the United States, they too, they don't care about their cargo. They just want to get money. And, and I suspect you'll probably have a mass interception because that's what the European people are going to want. The European people are not going to want wave after wave 
of North Africans and, and Syrians to come into their countries. I just, I don't see any appetite for it. So there will be, it will be politically expedient and politically popular to embark on an, uh, in my view, on a, uh, an interdiction policy. Do you think that actually stops the traffickers? I mean, it definitely could stop the problem of the immigrants arriving. Uh, uh, it forces the price up. And again, we have a lot of okay. models, uh, you yeah, know, out sure. there. So it makes the it forces the price up uh, for trafficking. So it makes it more expensive to go because it will never fully get rid of it. Just like you know, drug enforcement never yeah, fully yeah. gets rid of the drugs, but it does make it more difficult. It will force just like when the U.S.-Mexico border became more difficult to cross, the cartels, they went around and they found other ways to get in. Uh, so there will always be a human trafficking problem in Europe, uh, but at least this part of the problem may go away. The key problem here, and this is what I think offends the European sensibilities much more than anything else, unlike uh, Central American migrants coming into the U.S. who are largely uh, economic migrants, largely, not exclusively, but largely, uh, these are war refugees. And so where do you send them back to? Do you send them back to exactly, Syria? Yeah. And I think that's the, the, the real difficulty here is what do you do? Where do you put them? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Libya now is a mess. I mean, so even repatriating back to Libya, yeah. you, that's not a, a sustainable solution either. So I think this is where the European view of human rights and uh, of human dignity will clash with the practical politics that are on the ground. Well, I think apparently uh, at least you know, Paris and London are going to start talking to the UN Security Council. So I'm wondering if they're not trying to pass the hot potato around, um, but we'll see. So is it being, just very, very quickly, um, is it being discussed in Vietnam? I guess it's worlds away. No, and it's, right, no, right. Uh, it's not being discussed in Vietnam simply because it's really not that relevant of a story. But what's sure. interesting is that my earliest impression of Vietnam, which was back in the 1990s when I was living in Hong Kong, was Vietnam was exporting people and refugees all throughout Southeast Asia. Uh, mm -hmm. I remember in Hong Kong, they, the, they were called the boat people, and they were showing up all over, and they were being forcibly repatriated. So this is a story that if you talk to most Vietnamese, uh, they will be able to relate to and connect to, because the 1990s were a brutal period in this country's history. You know, boat people is a term that's still being used in France to to describe uh, hmm. these kinds of mi migrants. So, yeah, I remember in the '80s there were a lot of stories about the boat people, mostly from Vietnam, Eric. Yeah. Uh, and in it's fact, we had uh, a family. The Toes came to our little town of five thousand people in southern Illinois because they were, you know, there was a big program to settle people and try to find them places to live all throughout the country. Yeah, so I think you'll find a lot, if you actually brought up this story to a lot of people here, they would be able to relate to it and connect to it in a very personal way. All right, let's move on to another fun story. Um, the story of ma mass surveillance being voted into law um, in France, which I am very much against. Uh, and the way I describe it is mass surveillance. It would not please uh, the officials uh proposing those uh, texts and it is merely laws. metadata collection patrick <laughs> basically what they're saying is that it's <laughs> they want to install we've talked about this in various shows so i'm hoping people are aware of this but just in case uh, the main issue the main element of the laws i have an issue with is um the fact that they want to have what they call themselves black boxes being installed in 
internet service providers uh, server farms and other service providers uh, servers to capture all of the metadata, in some cases more than metadata, I mean, it's still a little bit obscure. We don't know how long it would be retained for, and there would be some kind of algorithm that would analyze the data, which sites everyone uh, goes to and what who they get in touch with uh, in order to isolate and target uh, potential terrorists from the, the entirety of the population. And... There are a myriad of reasons why this would not work. And I think I've never seen any example of a law where all everyone except the people proposing it, everyone is saying either they're against it or it wouldn't work as they think it would. And that includes, you know, the the experts, the people that know tech, the people that um uh that are in charge of protecting our freedoms, like everyone. But obviously with the Charlie Hebdo um, uh, attacks and only a few days ago, there was apparently a terror attack that was thwarted in the country. And that was basically one guy saying he would want to do something and maybe like it was a complete by chance that they got him because they were tracking someone else that it, it's a mess but what's sure is that they've played it up like nobody's business and you know it's a it's a communication it's being i'm not saying the story is not real but it's certainly being played up it feels like it's being played up a little bit more than it would have uh if the law wasn't also being discussed uh, at the moment and I don't want to get into it too much because I get very angry, uh, but that is something that is being discussed now. And I'm curious, again, um, if you heard of it, in, you know, uh, outside of me yelling about it, uh, maybe Tom is the most likely person. Well, to- yeah, I mean, I obviously heard about it because my job is to look at tech news right. every day. So it, it came up and obviously you brought it up on the show. Uh, but the interesting thing from the U.S. perspective is the fact that it's generally treated in the in the U.S. tech blogs as a side note. Uh, hey, we've all been dealing with this in the U.S. for a long time, and I guess France is now too. But they miss, or or maybe not even miss, but they avoid the point that, unlike the U.S., where there was a secret surveillance uh, plan that was only revealed after Edward Snowden leaked documents about it. France is doing this above board. They're coming out and saying, here's how we're going to spy on you folks and still getting it passed. Well, that's only recent, Tom, though, because the French and I think the U.S. tech blogs are pretty unsophisticated in how they deal with other countries for the most part, particularly France. France doesn't have a Fourth Amendment. And so what what offends the U.S. sensibility so much is that what the U.S. has been doing is in direct contravention of the Fourth Amendment of illegal search and seizure. Whereas in France, because they don't have that, police powers are much broader. I, you know, and what, going back years, the French intelligence services have had the authority to do things that the Americans have never been able to do. And so the French have been operating in this legal gray area for a very, very long time. Uh, not suggesting that what they've done is actually above board. You know, uh, Patrick, I remember uh, back when I was at France 24, there was that big uh, attack in Toulouse. Do you remember about three or four years ago, there was yeah. the the, uh, the attack. The way that the French secret uh, security services found him was through data. 
They found through text messaging and whatnot. And again, they could never have done that above board in the United States because they didn't need court orders. They didn't. They went right through into the phone networks to find the to the breadcrumbs back to the the data networks. Are to you track sure they didn't get and, they didn't get uh, court orders to to do all of this? I wouldn't be so. My sure understanding was they didn't. They were they okay. were working under the national security. Uh, kind of, they had a blanket kind of, you know, immunity to go right through. They found them within 72 hours, and it was a very, very quick. And the point is that they can do things in France that you couldn't do in the U.S. And and I think that that's been complicated for the French because they have been able to, you know, ramp up their abilities without the law keeping up with them. What what I just find repulsive about this law is how they're ramming it through in a three-day kind of debate. This is so fundamentally important, and it's just going, it's just being shoved down the throat of the parliament and, and the, the, the Assemblée Nationale, which I think is just absurd. This well, is too important to be put powers, down Why do they need the law at all, then? Is it, is it just to get the, the patina so, of, of appropriateness? So I think, so here's my conspiracy theory that I came up with a couple of days ago. Um, they are trying to legalize a lot of practices that have been illegal, but that they have been uh, doing for a long time. Uh, This mass surveillance thing is only one aspect of, of the laws that are being voted on. And I suspect that they are making this one so outrageous that is, it focuses all the attention on it. And they kind of know what it is. I think a lot of the of the uh, uh, parliament, uh, sorry, the elected people in the parliament, the how do you call that in English? The members of parliament, right? The members of parliament um, don't understand the technical aspects of it and only see, well, we have terrorism, we have to do something about it. Let's do this. And the government is apparently pushing for it. And the right can't really say, no, we don't want to, you know, do things against against terrorism because that's their uh, bread and butter. So everyone is is happy to go along with it. But I'm wondering if, uh, so just a few days ago, President Hollande said that he would uh, submit the law to the Constitutional Council, uh, and I'm guessing they might have things to say about the law. They're also amending it uh, here and there. Uh, So I'm guessing that they're expecting, ultimately, by the time it gets actually voted on and voted into law, it's going to be a little bit more tame than what they initially uh, proposed. However, all of the other portions of the law that no one is looking at because this one is so outrageous are well not being looking at not being looked at and they are legalizing a lot of things that have been happening before um, that no one is investigating so much because again all of the attention is on that other one so that is my conspiracy theory which honestly I'm not really believing in myself but I'm thinking might be possible um, because it's so outrageous, it's so ridiculous, it's so big that I'm, I'm, my, my conspiracy mind is is going to the place where there's something more to this. But I don't know. Um, I guess we'll see, and um, we'll have results about this soonish. I suspect. I'm just, just because hoping. you're paranoid, Patrick, doesn't mean they're not after you. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just hoping the Constitutional Council 
just says something about it and just doesn't just rubber stamp it, but we'll see. Um, let's go to the US. What's, it, well, what's been ha happening for you, Tom? Or for As your, I always say when I'm on jobs. the Phileas Club, I am a very bad consumer of US news since I don't consume it, but I made a special <laughs> effort on your behalf to pay attention to uh, Fox News, NPR, and USA Today over the last few days. Um, and really, the, the big serious story that is in the in the news right now uh, has to do with the on, ongoing coverage. And I know Eric uh, identified this as well with the way the police are, are treating minorities. And the current case is Freddie Gray in Baltimore, who died of a spinal injury while in custody. And there's a lot of, uh, uh, of confusion about how the spinal injury happened uh, and why it happened and why he was arrested, et cetera. They haven't even released the details of why Freddie Gray was arrested, but it's one of a series that goes back uh, to last summer in St. Louis in Ferguson, uh, when of course you had the, uh, the shooting of a suspect uh, and, and the controversy around that. That said, Uh, that is not the thing that is dominating the U.S. news today. The thing that is dominating the U.S. news today was the interview with Bruce Jenner on ABC's 2020 last night. Is that uh, still you, his name, by the way? It is for he's, now. He is not Sarah Jenner? Not yet. Uh, okay. it's, a, it's a very pertinent question. Uh, if anybody doesn't know, Bruce Jenner uh, is a gold medalist from the 1976 Olympics. He won the decathlon. It was back in the era of the Cold War. You know, oh, defeating blah, the blah, Soviet, blah, blah. Et cetera, He's a Kardashian. He's a Kardashian. And, That's and that is the next. That is the next <laughs> bit. Is like fast forward from 1976 to the modern day. He's no longer the face of the Wheaties box. He's the face of the guy in the Keeping Up with the Kardashians reality show. So he appeals to a broad so, set. Okay, sorry, sorry. Of Just wait a second. United States. Tom, yeah. I, I'm not getting those references. Why is he a Kardashian? Why is what, what he's is married that? to? Uh, I, the, he was the, married the mother to. of Kim oh. Kardashian. Okay, Or and he now was. he had yeah. a sex change operation. Is that the thing? Not, well? You're jumping ahead of the story here. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, he, I don't know. He. Uh, it has been rumored uh, uh, that he is going to have a sex change operation. He is definitely transgendered. That was the big headline that you just blew for me, Patrick. I, I apologize. It's yesterday, Sorry. he sat down with Diane Sawyer, who is a respected journalist here in the U.S. Uh, from ABC, and said, "I am a woman." Now, up until now, all of the coverage has been very much uh, sensationalistic. Even ABC's promotion of this has been sensationalistic. Uh, Bruce Jenner is going to become Bridget Jenner, uh, apparently. And, you know, why is this happening? And, and is it just publicity? He's going to do a reality show for E! about changing into a woman. Is, is this all just a stunt? And I have to uh, have to say, I, I'm, I watched the interview. It was a two-hour interview with Bruce Jenner last night. And Diane Sawyer and her team did an excellent job of not covering Bruce Jenner's transgender issues particularly, but covering the issue of being transgender and using Bruce Jenner's story to illustrate it. And I was incredibly pleased. It is the best bait and switch that I've seen in U.S. journalism in a, a long time. one. Exactly, where they got everyone to tune in for the titillating Kardashian sex change bit, and they did a tutorial in what it means to separate your your sex from your gender. They even at one point, you know, quoted a uh, a prominent expert in the field saying, uh, "Sex is 
is the body you go to bed uh, with and gender is the body you go to bed as or the, the I, I'm getting the quote wrong now. So obviously it didn't stick with me very well. But in other words, they 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 educated the U.S. public yesterday about the issue of transgenderism. And I think they changed a lot of minds. They got a lot of people to actually understand the issue from a very human point of view and stop just laughing about, oh, it's that gold medalist who's doing a stunt. So how is the, well, I, I was going to say, how is the U.S. reacting to the issue of gay marriage? And I'm taking a step back in but the whole debate. But those aren't necessarily related in that. I mean, sure, there's right. Not, and that was actually one I mean, of the... Homosexuality sure. and transgender don't have uh, an automatic link. And no, was, but I'm guessing they I'm hammered guessing that, that point the, yesterday on the show where they said, but you've been with women. And he's like, and I'll still be with women. I'm not gay. I'm a woman. And then she's like, well, are you a lesbian? He's like, I, it, yeah, it's not, it's the wrong question. You know, Patrick, I, what I think is interesting to see the American kind of reaction to this, and, and I think this is uh, fascinating for me, is again, there's been a, a cultural shift that's been underway for 20 years now, both about homosexuality and gay marriage, which we now see as pretty much standard. The Supreme Court is expected this summer to put the official stamp on it and say, this is now a done deal. Um, but when it comes to transgender issues, think back over the past 20 years as well. We've had Chaz Bono. We've had Chelsea Manning. We've had, you know, even I just learned today one of the Wachowski brothers who did the, the uh, who did the Matrix, the Matrix. Uh, yeah, did the transgender. Yeah. yeah. And I think what's so fascinating is that if you look, if you see the list of media personalities who've gone through this, um, there isn't this kind of, you know, what you would expect, this kind of shock and revulsion or kind of horror People are generally greeting it as, uh, okay, sure, yeah. Well, so okay. that, you that know. is actually the reason why I, I was asking the question about gay marriage. And I understand that they're, you know, not the same thing. But I'm guessing, and tell me if I'm wrong, I'm guessing that the people who would be, quote unquote, against gay marriage would also be the people who are shocked by the idea of a transgender person. So that's why, you know, on, on the scale of acceptability to people who are unaccepting of those things, I'm guessing if people can accept uh, gay marriage, then they're that step closer to accepting uh, transgender as a concept. And yeah, the most you know, recent poll numbers I can find, 63% of U.S. surveyed in a CNN ORC poll uh, supported Gay marriage as a constitutional right. 63 percent. Yeah, yeah, that's significant. And that, you know, and that's a, that's a actually a, the way they ask, ask the question: Do you support the freedom to marry as a constitutional right? Sixty three percent support that. There are others above that who don't support it as a constitutional right, but would support civil unions, etc. So really, the majority of the U.S. is fine with this now. Uh, and that's, and so I think it is interesting that gay marriage is now sort of fading as a controversial issue and Uh, and, and, exactly and it paves the way to actually confront the issue of transgender uh and 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 which just happened last night in a way that i did not expect i I, i'm not no disrespect to diane sawyer but i did not expect 2020 to give me a tutorial on what it means i expected it to be a fairly standard interview 
Yeah. You know, Tom, it's interesting. You We talk about the normalization of these values, and I think this is really interesting as cultures change. But you think back to, you know, Orange is the New Black, which is one of the most popular shows on Netflix. Uh, there's a transgender character there. So the same thing that what the Cosby show did for African Americans mm-hmm. that a lot of people said paved the way for Obama to be elected president, because seeing a middle class black African American professional became normal in some people's minds you know, gay characters over, you know, Will and Grace and, you know, the the litany of sitcoms that had gay characters for the past 20 years led to that. Now the next stage is to see transgender characters come into media, to see Diane Sawyer, to see the mainstream culture start to undertake this uh, and, and put a vocabulary to it, put faces to it so that it doesn't become this exotic anymore. The biggest hit Amazon instant streaming had in the U.S. won an Emmy was Transparent, where uh, Jeffrey Tambor played an older man who comes to terms with his the fact that he is transgender as as he is retiring which is exactly the bruce jenner story in that that case in france we had um the you know we we voted on gay marriage uh last year or maybe the year before and it was a very big debate in a way that i did not expect um in france i thought there wouldn't be an issue no, but the Catholics didn't like it, though, at all. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, you know, it was it was cute. I found myself uh, sort of stuck in a, an anti-gay uh, marriage. It was marriage for everyone, uh, the way it was branded here. Anti-gay marriage uh, uh, protest a couple of times. And they were the cutest protesters ever. <laughs> they were all, you know, they had their cute little cardigans and they were walking around with their children and they were, you know, very polite. And it was, and obviously it was a lot more important than that, but um, it was an interesting um, way of looking at this social uh, activity. Um, but so it, it's, I think it was voted on maybe last year, maybe a, a few months before and so we've had uh, uh on the first anniversary i think of the of the law people looking at uh the divorce rate and the way it was reported on was very matter of fact basically the what you were describing uh, eric it was oh well apparently they get divorced just as much as straight people do all right fine whatever okay. and and that was it and uh, so I'm, I'm thinking the transgender issue is going to be the next frontier, probably. And um, yeah, it will be interesting to see how it goes, definitely because of the, you know, the, the, the signs are here in popular culture as well. But I'm curious, though, Eric, how is that issue um, or that question being regarded in Vietnam? Well, so transgender is not, I think, and transgender requires a lot of money. And so in a country with a, the per capita income is $2,000, uh, the option isn't there for most people to, to pursue this if they wanted to. So let's take transgender off the table. On, on, LGB, on LGB issues, uh, not the T, <laughs> um, this is one of the most interesting countries in Asia because just uh, last year, at the, in the fourth quarter of last year, the Vietnamese parliament, uh, they... They did, they did a, an interesting legal trick here. They, it, uh, they said it's not illegal now to be gay in Vietnam. And that is the first step that people believe will pave the way for the legalization of homosexuality in Vietnam, which would make it one of the first Asian countries to, to do that. And then on top of it, uh, there is uh, expectation that that will lead to the first Asian country in, 
to, to legalize gay marriage. And when I came here three years ago for the first time, uh, we near our house, there was a, a freedom parade. And now that may not sound that unusual in Los Angeles or in Paris, uh, but here it is against the law for any, anybody, any group more than five people to organize without a permit. There are no such things as kind of spontaneous, spontaneous parades. Everything is approved by the government. Everything is approved by the police in advance. And so the fact that there was this open, you know, you know rainbow uh, type of gathering, which really surprised me, but it shows you that in this particular area, Vietnamese society is very, very progressive when it comes to sexuality. Uh, it's, it, it takes me by surprise because in many other ways, they're very culturally conservative. But on, on sexuality, on homosexuality, and even kind of heterosexuality as well, um, the culture and the government are both uh, much more progressive than, than most people imagine. So when you say there's no transgender, I know what you, you mean. There's no sexual reassignment surgery going on. Correct. Uh, but that doesn't mean there are not transgender people. They just either have to live in secret or they are, are simply not able to do the sex reassignment. It, how... Is there a culture of cross-dressing at all, even? There is. There is a, okay. There's a strong femme and emo culture here, particularly among, uh, obviously, among young, young men. Um, and, that you, and it's very visible, and you, you, don't, you don't have to be here very long to see it. Um, people are not intimidated or afraid in the big cities. I'll say that. Let me just kind of modify that. Sure. In Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City. In the countryside, I think, just like in any countryside, the values become more conservative. Uh, that's the same in the U.S. and in France and elsewhere as well. But in the big cities here in Ho Chi Minh City and in Hanoi, um, you know, people wear their homosexuality quite openly. Um, and it's not, again, something that you're ashamed about. People don't, you know, I have several of my staff who are openly gay. And it's not something that people gossip about or say anything negative about. They're like, well, okay, he's gay. Okay, well, whatever. Now, what I'm talking about in terms of the kind of sexual reassignment and some of these transgender issues uh, in those, you know, to do the chemical treatments, for example, to, to kind of change the hormones requires a healthcare system that can support it, requires obviously the means to purchase the drugs to do it. And for most people here, 99% of the population, they just don't have access to, the, to either the healthcare or sure. the, the financial means to do it. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I remember watching uh, The Butler, I believe, where there was a very powerful scene. Um, I, I can't remember if, if they actually said the words or if it was me who imagined them, but basically the idea that someone in their lifetime went from the situation in the US, you know, the, the situation of black people in the US before the war or even beyond that to a black president being elected. Now, I don't, you know, I'm not suggesting that that uh, racism has been eradicated. <laughs> Far from it. it. I mean, yeah, I would, I would not go down that path. Exactly. Right now. I mean, certainly with the yeah police brutality issues that you alluded to, Tom, uh, that would be um, uh, not accurate. Let's put it like that. But going from that, in you know, the the issues of racism and in the issues of um, you know, gender and gay and even transgender now that we're seeing those characters on TV. Um, I think we have a tendency of looking at the world in a very, I don't want to say negative way, but thinking that things 
don't change. We look at things in one moment and don't see. We look maybe a little bit too closely um, to 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 the world, and we don't really take a step back and look at things, how things evolve over even five or ten years. And you know, if we look at all of those issues, we have to admit that things do evolve, and maybe even a little bit faster than we thought they would. If you had asked me 30 years ago, do you think gays are going to be able to marry anytime soon? I would have said, well, <laughs> maybe in 150 years, you know, but generations have to change. Maybe we need several generations, but actually it seems all we needed was one. Um, well, and your, your point about racism illustrates that point. Uh, we, we tend to want to think in black and white, like, well, racism mm -hmm. hasn't been eliminated, so it hasn't changed. When the fact is, as bad as things are in the U.S. right now regarding race relations, they are still measurably improved over the 1960s. Uh, and the, there is no debate about that. It doesn't mean they're solved. doesn't mean they're perfect. Uh, it doesn't even mean they're close to perfect. But I, I think one of the, the keys here is that the understanding of a subculture uh, has improved immeasurably. There were so many stereotypes, and I hesitate to even use examples because they're so offensive about African Americans uh, going back into the 50s and 60s that just don't come up. And if they do, it's usually in the mouths of someone who's being portrayed as incredibly ignorant and backwards. Uh, but they were common stereotypes in the 50s and 60s, things like what kinds of things people eat or how they dressed, et cetera, et cetera. And we're now when you're talking about transgender, having that same conversation about, wait, you know, with transgender, does that mean gay? No, it doesn't mean gay. Does that mean you actually want to to change your sex to, to be a woman? Maybe it does sometimes, but there are other subcult, you know, parts of the subculture who don't. They're transvestites. They just want to wear women's clothing, but they still want to identify as a woman. And it's very complex for people who are unfamiliar with it to wrap their heads around it. But we're having that conversation now, which was a conversation that played out in the U.S., in the 60s and early 70s uh, and and has progressed now to where we are looking for eliminating those friction points regarding to racism rather than trying to understand that it even exists. I mean, there were people in the 60s claiming that there was no such thing as racism because, you know, that's just the natural order of things. You don't hear people <laughs> talking about that anymore. Yeah, you know, the U.S. culture is changing in many ways, too, that are permitting this to happen. So it's becoming a more secular culture. Um, it's, people aren't going to church as much. People are, aren't identifying uh, as extreme religious or as religious as they used to. Uh, and people are actually redefining marriage even in the heterosexual context that people are marrying later. In many ways, Patrick, you would recognize it as a European that uh, there's much more cohabitation. You know, a majority of French and Swedes and I think Europeans as a whole uh, cohabitate without marriage and they get a pex. Uh, and that's happening more and more. Civil unions are happening in the United States more and more. So you're having this whole redefinition of relationships and families uh, in a way that makes this conversation possible and acceptable. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I still, I, I for me, uh, I think marriage was something important. But, uh, you know, it's funny. And I don't want to, okay, a couple of things. First of all, it, it, it's the case in the US and it's definitely the case in France as well and in Europe. I'm sure that the idea of race or stereotypes was very present 
uh, even a few short years ago. I remember, you know, the brands of and the imagery on some uh, products that you could find in the store would seem very offensive today. Um, in in and that was commonplace even thirty years ago. Um, so it has changed in France as well. And the second thing, it's more, it's just an anecdote regarding marriage that you made me think of. When I got married to my wife a few years ago, it's funny how my understanding, uh, not my understanding, my view of couples kind of changed because for me, it felt like we had entered a very serious Uh, it was a serious affair, even though it was very natural. But when I look at people, you know, on the net, on, on comments, threads or on Twitter, or when they're saying my girlfriend or my partner or my significant other, for some reason, and I understand this is weird, it's just me, but it seems to me as kind of child's play a little bit. It's like, well, you know, Marriage is where it's at. Marriage is the is the serious thing. So it's just you know something funny. You sound I like mean. an old man. You kids, get off my lawn. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> But you know, if anything, I I think obviously everyone should be able to choose how they they handle their relationships. But if anything, it makes me even more convinced that people who who truly love each other should be able to claim the rights to get married, whether they're gay or straight or anything else. Um, and or not, by the way, too. That's equally oh, yeah, important. Yeah, no, exactly, well, exactly. You know, and that's, and, the, that, that's the big change in the U.S., is that people are being able to cohabitate and have civil unions with all the rights that come with that as well, in child sure. care. And, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, when I moved in with my girlfriend in 1993, it was, it was sketchy. It was a little bit sketchy. My parents were sort of holding their tongues about it. Today, was it? you wouldn't even blink. Huh. Yeah, you don't even think about it. Hmm. All right. Things move in the right direction, I think, is the... Uh, I, I, you know, I honestly think that's the case. When you're, you're talking about old people getting asking the kids to get off their lawn, and I think a lot of uh, people think... Oh, back in my day, it was like this and it was so much better. And in most cases, I really don't think that's the case. I think in most cases, things overall and even in most particulars were not better. Yeah. Um, the wider mm. the wider view you take, the the better humanity looks, right? Mm, that's right. Uh, you know, we're not we're not being leached anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Slavery is at an all-time low. Yeah, but even, you know, th people think that the world is more violent than it's ever been. And actually, it's the exact opposite. Uh, you know, violence is that even though we do have issues with terrorism and we do have armed conflicts in some regions of the world, uh, and I'm not saying it's going to keep on the downward uh, trend forever, but for you know at least until the since the end of world war ii uh the number of armed conflict or of of trans border armed conflict has been uh steadily declining the number of deaths uh in uh western countries has been declining it's there is more literacy rates there is more uh less uh, uh infant mortality there's less everything all of the indicators are in the green um 
And I don't think people realize that enough. It doesn't mean we should stop that we've won and that everything's perfect. But sometimes it's it's nice when, especially in a show like this, where we talk about all of the horribleness in the world, uh, usually or often, to to realize that things are not that bad. Yeah. I would say. And talking about things that are, I don't know how to qualify this. Uh, well, no, Eric, it's actually it, it. We're going to close out kind of on this theme of forty. You know, looking back over the past forty years, and uh, you know, and and kind of change and uplifting positive change. So we started on a rather grim note, you know, and we're going to end on a more positive note here. Uh, you know, on April twenty eighth, uh, nineteen seventy five, a tank crashed through the gates of the presidential palace in Saigon, officially bringing an end to the war in Vietnam. Now, this war is misperceived uh, outside of Vietnam. Particularly in Europe and in the United States, the war in the United States was always a the Vietnam War. This was a war between the Americans and the Vietnamese. The Vietnamese do not consider this to be a war between the Vietnamese and the Americans. This was a war between North and South. And what I find so interesting in this 40th anniversary of the war, which is really an important milestone for the Vietnamese, that they don't mention the Americans at all. There's really no reference whatsoever to the fact that the Americans fought here. Uh, their emphasis is on the kind of reunification of the country between the North and the South. And the, the Americans were simply a supporting actor to the South, to the corrupt dictators in the South who, who the communists kind of defeated. That's their, their kind of line on this. And so what's happening here uh, all this week, uh, they're closing down the streets in Hanoi and in the downtown areas of Ho Chi Minh City, uh, and they're going to have big parades. And this has never happened since 1975, the last time that the Vietnamese military was on the streets of, of Saigon was 1975. And here we have next Thursday, we're going to have a military parade. And people are enormously proud and very, very happy and very excited about this. And uh, there's, you know, they're expecting a quarter of a million people to line the streets. They're going to have the, you know, all the decorations and everything. And there's a lot of coverage right now going on in the, in the US and European press to kind of look back at these 40 years. And, and the changes are just inconceivable. And I'll just give you one short anecdote. We went to the opening of a new mall in our neighborhood, uh, which has a Starbucks in it, a McDonald's in it, an Adidas store, a BMW dealer, a Harley Davidson dealer in it, uh, a new IMAX movie theater, and they're promoting the Avengers, which <laughs> is opening up on IMAX uh, 3D. And there was Captain America in his, uh, you know, in his full <laughs> uniform right there. And my little boy went running up to Captain America and waited in line with about 15 other Vietnamese boys to get their picture taken with Captain America. And you just That's could amazing. not have imagined that 40 years ago that these that that, you know, that our two countries were in a brutal war. I mean, remember that more munitions were dropped on Vietnam in, the, in this in the war than all of Japan and the, and the European conflict in World War II combined. So this was three million Vietnamese died in this war. Um, you know, 57,000, if, if I'm correct, Americans died. And yet here's Captain America you know, posing with Vietnamese children. And, and it's really remarkable what's happened. And, uh, and, and just the last kind of key point on this is that the relationship between Vietnam and the United States now is really getting closer in many different ways. Uh, next year will be, or this year actually, uh, is the 20th anniversary of the uh, establishment of diplomatic relations between the United States and Vietnam. Uh, Clinton uh, signed into, the, into law the, the, the normalization of ties. Uh, and this year, Harvard University is going to be breaking ground on their only uh, overseas campus here in Saigon. 
And this is, again, so it, highlighting that the relationship between the United States is improving, not just on a kind of a, a, a political, but also on a cultural, on military. You know, we've John McCain, who was a prisoner of war in the Hanoi Hilton for six years, um, is a very well-known figure here. He comes quite regularly. And he was the one who lobbied most aggressively to take down the, the arms embargo that the United States has on Vietnam. And so now U.S. weapons are being sold to, to certain kinds of U.S. weapons are being sold to the Vietnamese. U.S. Woo-hoo! and Vietnamese so navies that, are, co- are cooperating together. I, well, yeah. m- remember my enemy's enemy is my friend. So, okay, so, so everybody is, is fearful of China. And, and so that's why, you know, China is really the one that's bringing the Americans and the Vietnamese together in many ways because they both have a common, they both perceive a common threat, uh, particularly in the South China Sea or the East Vietnamese Sea, as the, as the East Sea as the Vietnamese call it. So it's a fascinating time to think back over 40 years. I mean, here I am as an American running a news channel, which even five years ago would have been inconceivable in this country. And, and it's just, it's really very exciting. And this is a, a very vibrant, dynamic country. This is a country where a third of the population has a Facebook account. Um, I mean, that is just a stunningly high number for a developing country. Uh, it's the fastest growing YouTube country in all of Asia. Um, so I, there's so many things that are happening, you know, on so many different levels that you can look back over 10, 20, 30, 40 years to this anniversary of that tank crashing down the gate. And you, you just shake your head with, with Marvel. You know, I'm I'm gonna go to to Tom because certainly the anniversary of the Vietnam War, I I'm not sure how it's being handled in the U.S. Ignored, okay, entirely well, ignored. Go. The anniversary in the United States is the departure from Saigon. It's the helicopters leaving mm-hmm. the embassy. Uh, it's, it's the pulling defeat. out of troops. Yeah, it's the, it's the it's the remembering the defeat. Uh, we forget not only uh, as as Eric very you know I. I I forget until Eric brought this up that in Vietnam, the war is a civil war. It's not it's not the U.S. versus the North Vietnamese. We forget that China was involved. We forget the Soviet Union was involved. Uh, we, we forget that this was this was a civil war that major superpowers were trying to take advantage of for their own uh, for their own benefit. Uh, and and I, I think this is a really important shift in perspective to think about, because, yeah, here in the United States, not a not a peep, not, mm-hmm. nothing about it at all. You know, it haunts the U.S. still to this day. And, it, and, and you know, listen, the, the, the Vietnamese haunt the French. Let's not forget about Dien Bien Phu as well. I mean, the Vietnamese took the French to town as much as they took the Americans to town. Uh, and there's not a lot of remembrance of French defeat in Vietnam either. So, oh, there, so there I, is none. <laughs> so, so the Vietnamese have a pretty good track record in the 20th century. Uh, but nonetheless, what, what's so fascinating about the Vietnamese is that um, you, you, you talk to them and, you know, a lot of Westerners come here and they say, well, you know, how do they view Americans or even the French? You know, the French colonized this country for a century and they were not nice colonizers. It was a brutal colonization that was here. Uh, and yet you, you, you talk to the Vietnamese and, and they literally have no antith- antipathy, any kind of hostility of any kind. And it's genuine. Um, you know, my, my chief engineer in my, my, my TV station um, He's got three pieces of American shrapnel in his body. He fought at Quezon against the Americans. Um, and I asked him, I said, you know, do you hold us responsible? He said, no, my daughter's at the University of Wisconsin in Eau Claire. Uh, you know, I'm going to be retiring in America. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, my God, you know. And, and, and he said something very interesting to me. He said, the Vietnamese have a unique opportunity, a unique ability to forgive. They forgive the Japanese who colonized them. They forgive the 
the, 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 the Americans, the French, even the Russians who were here for a brief period, uh, the only ones they say they will never forgive are the Chinese. Well, and, well you, and you look at the you look at examples of that. Uh, you know, just just for any U.S. listeners, the Philippines uh, have a great relationship with the United States. The United States was not always very uh, kind to the Philippines during its administration of that country. And yeah. inside the United States, the South and the North uh, still coexisting more than a hundred years later. <laughs> uh, we had a we had a very divisive and 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 very violent civil war in this country. And and people don't forget that, but I think they forget what that means that we have come out of it as a very firmly united country, uh, at least, you know, related to what that separation was. Yeah. Well, you know, not to be outdone, I'm going to uh, throw in the European chip in the game um, with a, a Are you going to talk I about think... taking Normandy back from the English or something? <laughs> like... No, not quite quite that uh, far off. Um, I, I might have mentioned this story in the show before, but I remember a few years ago when I was... Uh, uh, in the first couple of years when I was working at Blizzard... Um, Blizzard is a company that has a lot of different nationalities, a lot of different languages are handled in the in the business. So we have a lot of different people from different countries working in the same office. And I remember going down to, you know, the uh, outside the building and there were a few people smoking there. And uh, there were, you know, French, German, uh, Polish, a bunch of different people and we were joking around and having fun. It was young people, you know, in their 30s or so. And um, at some point, one of us made a joke about some, you know, German Nazi or some, you know, World War II thing about Nazis. And we all laughed and it was kind of funny. And then, you know, we stopped and realized that possibly one of the people present, uh, <laughs> grandfathers, might have been actual actors in that story or might have died or killed in that war. And we sort of took a moment to, to, to take on the, the gravity of the fact that only, you know, 50 years later, a little bit more, um, we were all here not only interacting, being friends, being uh, 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 active with one another, but actually being able to laugh about these things that are no laughing matter at all. Um, so that was sort of, a, again, another one of those realizations that this is kind of an amazing turn for, for the world, for us, and that, I guess, again, uh, things are aren't as bad as we sometimes uh, want to think they are. No, I mean, things have improved in this country remarkably over the past 40 years, particularly over the past 20 years. Uh, you know, it really, really opened up. The country started really blooming uh, with the normalization of ties with the United States. Uh, and now, you know, people are looking forward to TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And what's so interesting, we won't get into the whole TPP thing, but when you're sitting on this side of the trade deal, you look at it very differently than if you're in the U.S., where everybody is kind of concerned about the loss of jobs and, you know, rightfully concerned about labor and environmental issues. But over copyright. here, there's an enormous copyright as well. Yeah, an that's enormous amount of excitement. Go. 
what enormous amount of excitement of being able to kind of export into the U.S. for you know without any duties. So, you know, again, it's just this, there, there's a lot of optimism about the the U.S. Vietnam relationship going forward. Some trepidation still. It's not all kind of roses. It, you know, it's still a complicated relationship as all kind of international relations are. But when you compare that 40 years ago to last to next Thursday. Um, you know, the helicopters were, were fleeing from, you know, from, from District 1 of Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon. Uh, it's remarkable to think what's happened. All right. I guess that is probably a good uh, place to end the show. A little bit of positivity. Nice uplifting uh, <laughs> kind of point there, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hesitate. I, I feel like it's important, and, I, and I'm sorry to, to end our positivity a little bit by saying this, but it is important to note that as we're recording this, there was a 7.8 magnitude quake in Nepal, which the news out of it just keeps getting worse as the minutes go by. Uh, nearly a thousand people now, their estimate, uh, have died there. And the only reason I bring it up is not to put a damper on things, but to, to show that, you know, we, you, there's always some crisis, and this is the kind of crisis where humans are responding. Uh, Pakistan and India both helping Nepal already uh, to deal with this earthquake. And those are two nations that don't cooperate on a lot. So, um, you know, not to think that that we're ignoring these sorts of things because this this is turning out to be a huge tragedy. But even in, in tragedy, you know, humans' capacity to forgive and humans' capacity to help is actually much greater than I think we often think it is. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's not, you know, on this show, as I was saying earlier, we do talk about the 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 biggest issues that the world and humanity face uh, all the time. And it's not to say that they aren't real. It's just that, yeah, sometimes it's uh, nice to look at a little bit of the good things that come out of it on the long run. So that's what we did. Another good thing is iTunes. When people go there and leave nice comments about this show, that makes me happy too. For example, Steve, a few uh, weeks ago, went there and said, wonderful news podcast, adding, love the podcast and the different takes of world news that uh, you can find from views around the world. Patrick does a great job of allowing others from different locations around the world to share their views on events. I think that sums up the show uh, in a nutshell, uh, thank you very much, Steve, for leaving a five-star review on there. Um, we've been out uh, for a few, a couple of years, and we've been back for six months. I've, I think we're back uh, on the saddle now. The show is uh, is is getting where I would like it to be. So thank you so much for sticking with us. Thank you so much uh, for actually contributing to the show. There are a number of people going on Patreon and uh, contributing money to the survival. Well, not the survival. It's not in danger. Uh, but supporting the show. Um, there are over a hundred of you guys uh, going there. And thank you so much for doing so. I very, very, very much appreciate it. Um, the, the address, if you want to contribute, is patreon.com slash Club. Uh, you can uh, do that as well if you think the show is worth something to you or to the world you know let's not uh, look at things in a small-minded way and uh, if you want to have more wonderful stories people and uh, entertainment how about you go to those fine places that my guests are going to tell you about right now starting with uh, ace detect because he's uh, first in the alphabet 
<laughs> okay, fine. Uh, I'll take it. Daily Tech News Show. Uh, if you like these sorts of issues with a technology spin, that is what we do every day. We Monday through Friday, anyway. We we talk about the tech news around the world. Patrick joins us most Tuesdays uh, to talk about whatever's in the news that day, and also give us a, a perspective from from a different part of the world as well. So, uh, hopefully, if you're into technology, you'll check it out and um, hopefully enjoy it. So do you think we're going to talk about the Apple Watch this Tuesday or is it going to be old by then already? I, it might be old by Tuesday. Mm. Uh, I, we didn't even talk about it that much on Friday wow. because I hadn't actually received mine yet. Uh, mostly we talked about the iFixit teardown, how they put, poured resin over the chip to keep people <laughs> from reverse engineering it. So you, I didn't realize you had uh, ordered one. Um, I, I now, think it would be interesting to compare experiences because I yeah, have to as well. So maybe I have it on my wrist right now. Ooh, exciting. Or not. And most eh, likely I'm still not. still not sure. It's yeah. A, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk, talk about it at some point. Eric, what about you? Let if we uh, want to hear more about actually two of the most interesting powers and the way they're moving uh in the world, China and Africa. Yeah, so I do something called the China Africa Project. It's something I started about five years ago to kind of document the kind of rise of Chinese of China all across Africa. It's a, it's a topic that a lot of people kind of, you know, don't really pay much attention to until they realize how incredibly important it is. We podcast every week. Uh, Kobus Van Staden, my, my podcast partner out of South Africa, he and I uh, do two podcasts a week. Uh, so you can find us on iTunes. Uh, we're doing about 100,000 downloads a month now. So we're very excited about the growth of the podcast. Nowhere near what you guys are doing. So I got to kind of find out what the special sauce is from the pros here. But uh, <laughs> if you'd like to find us, just go over to iTunes, search for China Africa Project. We're also on SoundCloud, Stitcher. Uh, you can find us anywhere else, uh, kind of where all your famous podcasts are found. Um, Twitter's E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, tweeting the top China in Africa headlines every day. And then uh, we have a quarter million folks on Facebook with a, an amazing discussion going on, again, about all things China-Africa, economics, politics, culture, military. Uh, so facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Excellent. A quarter million. That's nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, we're very happy yeah, with that. It, it shows you amazing interest, in mostly from Africa and then South Asia, as well as in North America. Excellent. Well, now you know where to go. Thank you very much to the both of you. You can find me on Twitter at NotPatrick, and you can find this show and others at Frenchspin.com. And uh, that's going to be it for us. We'll be back in a month for a new Feelings Club. Thank you so much. Talk to you then.